Welcome to our continued look at the race for the White House with our latest podcast, Into the Arena. I'm Alexis Simmendinger, correspondent for Real Clear Politics. In the final two and a half months of the election, my colleagues and I are pausing each Thursday to dissect election developments from the 2016 battlegrounds. In our first episode, our polling experts David Byler and Sean Trende discuss the numbers race, while our co-founder and publisher Tom Bevan speaks with Republican National Committee Chief Strategist Sean Spicer. Finally, reporters Caitlin Huey Burns and James Arkin set the scene this week in Ohio, considered a must-win bellwether in modern-day presidential contests. We welcome your feedback at realclearpolitics.com. First up are David and Sean. This week, I have RCP senior elections analyst Sean Trendy with me, and we're going to talk about what's really the question in election analysis right now, which is, can Trump catch up? And if he can catch up, uh, how plausible would a comeback be? And what would a Trump comeback even look like? Uh, So first things first, uh, we should establish that Trump right now really is behind. In the RCP average for Trump versus Clinton, uh, Clinton's up by about five points. And in the four-way contest, which is Trump, Clinton, and two third-party candidates, Libertarian Gary Johnson and Green Party candidate Jill Stein, she's up 4.3 points. Uh, When you look at the Electoral College, things don't get much rosier. We won't go into all the details of that, but you can look at our ratings, the ones at Cook, the ones at Sabdos Crystal Ball, uh, the general election models at places like 538 and the Upshot. Basically, Clinton is doing much better than Trump in the Electoral College. So the first question, and I'll let you take first uh, stab at this, Sean, is... uh, can Trump catch up? Is there historical precedent for it? Do you think he can close the gap? Is that possible? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's two separate questions here that I think a lot of people conflate. I mean, the first is, can Trump catch up? And the, the second, actually, I guess three, is there historical precedent? Like, have people done it before? And then the third is, how likely is it? Um, so the first, can Trump catch up, is... is to me, quite obviously, yes. I mean, the, the, you know, there's still a large amount of time between uh, now and Election Day. Uh, I think he'd have to shave one point off Hillary Clinton's lead every other week. Um, so, you know, that's doable. But there's this broader question that I think you probably want to have a more fuller uh, conversation about, which is um, – how likely is it, and is there historical precedent for it? You know a lot of the history on this. So in terms of precedent, when have candidates closed larger gaps, and you know what's that looked like for them? Well, now, I don't think any candidate has ever gone from being down three to five weeks after the elections to actually pulling it off. Um, but we have seen elections where candidates have moved the needle that far. Um, and, and given that we're talking about a relatively small sample size here of you know, 10 to 15 elections, some of which were blowouts, um, you know, that, 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 that the fact that it has moved that much is probably the more relevant data point. And so years like uh, 1968, 1972, 1976, 80, 92, 96, these were all years that saw some pretty substantial movement um, in the post-convention phase. And so that's something that anyone who writes off the possibility of a Trump comeback really need, really needs to figure out a way to take to account for. Yeah, and so that's one thing that I found kind of interesting when looking at the historical polling data and looking at how much past candidates have moved is that all the years that you just listed are 20 years 
or more ago. Um, it's, you know, in the last two decades, we haven't had one that moved uh, that much. And that's, I'm not, you know, trying to make the point that it can't move that much because those elections are, are you know, far in the past or something like that. But I think that does get to something that we've talked about sort of off the podcast in a number of different times about polarization, right? That in past elections, you had more movement, you had uh, voters, you know, voters switching between the parties more, things along those lines. Um, I don't know. Do you think that that's possible for that to repeat now? Or what's your general thought on that? So I think there's two thoughts. I mean, the first is we have to be careful in elections by saying that hasn't happened in 20 years, because what you're really saying is four elections have gone by uh, where this hasn't occurred, right? I mean, since 1996, you're really talking about 2000, 2004, 2008, and 2012. Um, So, you know, in statistical terms, 20 years of elections is nothing. It's, it could easily be uh, just you rolled four, te- four heads in a row. Um, but on a more theoretical level, you know, kind of like how, do I, how should I actually evaluate this, um, you kind of have to that, – that's one theory is that we've become more polarized during this time period. Um, but I think you also have to look at the possibility that what's happened is that the, the conventions have gotten – pushed forward into to the point where they're almost in 2008 and 2012 they were and even 2004 they were practically in the debate season i mean the the republican convention in 2004 i believe was in september um so that just makes it uh, more difficult um for for there to be these shifts as opposed to now where we had the conventions in july we kind of have this lull in august like what happens when people really look in um, and finally, you, you talk about the polarization scenario, which, which is something you have to take very real account of. But but Trump is not generic Republican, um, right? And so that's the polarization is, look, Republicans nominate Republicans, Democrats nominate Democrats, everyone's locked down. But that's not this year. I mean, and I would argue Hillary Clinton isn't generic Democrat either because of the baggage she carries. So you know, look, this this year could well play out like every other election beforehand. That's probably the smart bet. I just don't think it's as sure a thing as if this had been, say, you know, Kristen Gillibrand versus Marco Rubio or something like that. I'm on the same page as you in the sense that, you know, Trump can still win. There's definitely precedent for the polls moving enough for him to win. But one thing I kind of want to uh, talk about, and this is these are two questions that are I think kind of related, but also separate, which is how plausible uh, is that comeback? Like, I don't know, what kind of probability would you maybe put on it? And what does that actually look like when you're a person who's watching the news every day or you're, you know, going to a rally or what have you or whatever for Trump to win? I don't know, what, what, do, you, what do you think that takes? I mean, I actually think the various... Um predictive models have it about right. Um, You know, they have it around a 20 to 25% chance of Trump winning. What we've seen and kind of the, this is just such, it's such an odd election. And I know people pay a lot of lip service to that notion, uh, but it's actually true. It is an odd election. Um, When Trump stays out of the news and he isn't off saying all these kind of off the wall things, this race tightens. In fact, that, that's what we're seeing. That's very possibly what we're seeing right now. 
you know, with the race coming down to, you know, as you said, a five-point race from where it looked like Hillary was probably up eight or nine points. Now, I don't know where the equilibrium is. Is the equilibrium four points? Is it two points? You know, is it a tie? Um, but so, so this is a long way of saying the first thing that has to happen is, is you know, Trump has to not say anything stupid, uh, which seems to be asking a lot. Um, the second thing that has to happen uh, is he has to have good debates. He, he has to come off as presidential. And the fact that he doesn't seem interested um, in prepping does not seem either doesn't seem promising if you're a Trump supporter or is very promising if you're a Democrat. And then the third thing um, is Hillary Clinton, you know, this something she needs to get hit with something else. You know, maybe it's the WikiLeaks thing. Maybe it's just some black swan we can't think of right now. But uh, that's uh, that could make a big splash as well. So probably some two or three of those things that I just uh, went over. Okay, I think that makes sense. Uh, that's roughly where I'm thinking about a lot of this stuff. The kind of other question that I'm wondering about is like, what would a Trump comeback look like in terms of demographics? What what would a Trump coalition actually be? So I think when we're talking about demographics and, and pulling off a win, one thing that a lot of people get confused about is they tend to think of these things in, in yes-no terms, right? Like, Trump either wins college-educated women or he doesn't, or, you know, Republicans either win Hispanics or they don't. And, and, and that's not the right frame for these things. Um, the, the right frame for these things is, you know, do they win enough of them? And so, you know, if we're talking about shaving five points off the national margin, there's a couple ways Trump could do, go about it. He could try to do even better among white men without college degrees, just like Barack Obama improved over John Kerry showing, in part because he did a lot better with non-whites than uh, John Kerry did. There's a substantial portion of the, and by substantial I mean 10%, um, of the Hispanic and African American population that has voted Republican in the last few years in, in midterm elections. So Donald Trump needs to do better than 0% among them, which is what he's doing in some polls. Um, you know, so there's some low-hanging fruit for him there. Um, there's suburban women, you know, a group that he needs to have greater appeal to. Again, doesn't have to win. Uh, you know, if I were him, I'd be trotting Ivanka out everywhere, his successful uh, working daughter um, who did very well um, from folks group polling in the convention, so uh, in her convention speech. So that's kind of where I'd be looking if I were him, but somewhere, some combination of those groups. Yeah, I think that makes sense for Trump. So if he has that sort of room to grow, um, do you think Clinton has room to grow? Because I was looking through, I, I guess it's interesting to me that she does worse in the four-way matchup. It's by, you know, a little less than a percentage point based on today's Real Clear Politics average. But that Hillary Clinton does worse when there's a couple third parties thrown in uh, than when people who respond to polls are forced to pick between just Trump and Clinton. So, I mean, is there room to grow for Hillary Clinton, do you think? Well, now, that is a, a very good question. Um, you know, the how much of the support for Gary Johnson fades down the stretch? And so far, the answer is not, not a lot. I mean, he, he's been holding... Uh, holding steady. And so that has to be causing a little bit of, of heartburn uh, in the Clinton camp. Now, um, 
I guess you could also look at it as room to grow because third parties typically do fade down the stretch, except when they don't um, see Ross Perot. So I, I don't know. Uh, the, the, the issue for Clinton is that she still has very high unfavorables. They, they've definitely improved since the convention, and part of that is just the Democrats, uh, the, some of the Bernie supporters and other Democrats coming home to her. But they're still pretty bad. And so for the 25 to 35% of the country that dislikes both candidates, that creates fertile soil for a third party. The one number that kind of stuck out to me as I'm kind of looking through all of this and trying to figure out if Clinton has room to grow was that, uh, I don't know, I think you probably saw this, um, but there was a Pew poll like a little while back that broke out for the different age groups. And, you know, Pew's a highly respected pollster. Um, and what they had was that they had for 18 to 29 year olds, um, 38% for Clinton, 27% for Trump, 19% for Johnson at 9% for Stein. And just for a little bit of context, uh, Johnson and Stein were at 10% and 4% in that poll. So both of them really were performing about twice as well with, you know, uh, or were performing twice as well with millennials as they were with the general population. So I wonder if Clinton has room to grow there. I, I don't get you crazy, millennials. Like, I, <laughs> I, I really don't. But I don't think anyone does. And that's yeah. actually really important. You know, if you read Gen X and baby boomer pollsters, they always say millennials are up for grabs. But then there's this kind of under the breath snicker like, yeah, right, they're really Democrats. Come on, guys. And I don't think that's right. Like, I think millennials really are up for grabs. I think they have some strong ideological priors, but I don't know that they have the partisan attachments that, that older voters do. And I mean, that, that makes perfect sense, given everything we know about how party attachment and affiliation work and the fact that the kind of left-right fight in our country has been defined by the baby boomers and not millennials. So I think this election is kind of displaying that, that no, really, you know, the, the, the baby boomer or the millennials haven't made up their minds yet. And if they have candidates, it's not like the older folk where, you know, okay, they don't like Republicans or they don't like Democrats, but they're still going to vote for the Republican or Democrat because that's who they are. They really don't have these strong ideological or partisan priors yet and can be shifted to a third party candidate. I think back when you were talking a little bit earlier, you kind of hit the nail on the head that this is just like a really weird election. Trump and Clinton have really high favorable unfavorable numbers. Um, you have Johnson not fading down the stretch. You have a, a kind of weird constellation of policy positions from Trump. Um, yeah, in some ways, I'm really not totally sure what to make of it. But yeah, it seems to me that the answer is yes, Trump can catch up. Clinton is the on-odds favorite still at this point. There's precedent for him making up a larger gap than the amount that he's down by uh, against Clinton. And that seems to be a, a decent summation of, of the race. Now here's RCP co-founder Tom Bevan talking with the RNC's Sean Spicer. I'm Tom Bevan, co-founder and publisher of Real Clear Politics, joined by Sean Spicer, the senior communications well, let's, director, let's, yeah. strategist at the RNC. Person who's been here a long time. <laughs> All right, Sean, so we're 70 days out yeah. from the election uh, as we sit here right now. Um, Give me your assessment of where things stand here 
with the so, campaign. So, like, look, uh, politics is like sports in a way, right? You always want to be winning, um, and you want to be ahead. Um, so there's no one, there's no team. But I, I'm a Patriots fan, and we know how to win in the fourth quarter. Um, yeah, and you cheat. Oh, come on. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I think that's where we are. We're coming into Labor Day. This is when people traditionally start really tuning into politics. And if you look at the national polls, uh, we've been down anywhere from you know six to ten. I think you guys had us at six eight last week, average. That trajectory is moving in our favor. The gap is closing. I think we're probably down to four three as we f fall into Labor Day. Potentially two. The LA Times poll has had us up to. Um, but it's not just those national polls. It's the state polls. You look at North Carolina, Iowa, Florida. Um, again, it's not. In some cases, we're we're still behind in some of these cases. But the trend in a lot of cases is moving in the right direction. So look, you look at the Reuters poll. We were down twelve two weeks ago. We're now down five. I mean, that's a pretty substantial move in the right direction. And what do you attribute that to? Well, I think two things. Um, one is Trump is now entering a third week of really staying on message, focused, um, and you know, and then conversely, she's had two and a half of the, the worst two weeks that she's had. She's been in hiding. She's not talking to the press. She's been hopscotching around from Beverly Hills and Nantucket to Greenwich to, to Martha's Vineyard having fundraisers, which I get. I mean, we do the same thing. But she has been sort of, um, you know, popping up here and there to give a speech and then nowhere to be found. I think that they bet that Trump would have a bad week or two and thought, hey, the smart is it's almost like playing prevent defense. They just hung back on their goal line, assuming that that would be a smart move. They didn't anticipate Trump really kind of hitting his groove and having it not just, you know, one day or two days, but, you know, heading into the third week now. Give me your sense on um, the path to 270, right? There was a lot of talk about this campaign that the map was going to shift and Trump was going to be competitive in the Midwest. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania's sort of swung away from him. Yeah, it's, um, I still think Pennsylvania, I, I, I'm not giving up on Pennsylvania. I'll, I'll tell you this. Here's why it's, it's the interesting thing is in 2012, I mean, Romney had to, it was, it was like a bank shot against a bank shot, right? You had to, he had to take Virginia, North Carolina, Ohio, Florida, but it had to be every one of them. Trump has truly expanded the map. And what do I mean by that? Well, you look, Nevada, we're up. I think we got a really good shot at taking Nevada. Iowa, we're either tied or up. I feel good about potentially Maine, too. I'm not ready right off New Hampshire entirely yet. I feel like Pennsylvania is definitely going to stay in play. Wisconsin, just today, we're down four. I mean, this is, this is, um, so I like, I mean, those are all states that weren't really on the map last time, and they are now. But it still comes, I mean, Florida's still key, right? Florida's key. Ohio's key. Absolutely. I mean, you can't, I have a hard time putting together a map that doesn't include both of those states. Let's talk about Ohio. Um, this is a state that no uh, Republican has ever won with, with the White House without winning Ohio. And you have uh, Donald Trump there. We had a poll come out last week, showed him tied. Another one had him down four. I think he's down about four in our real clear politics average. Um, famously, John Kasich uh, not endorsing him, not putting his machine to work right. on behalf of Trump. Uh, Portman is running well ahead, yeah. 11 double digits yeah, ahead and, of Trump. You know, you, you, not only that, but you've seen the DSCC, the, uh, the Senate committee, the Senate arm of, 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 for the Democrats, taking down their ad buy. I mean, they, they know that Strickland's way behind, and I think they're not going to throw good money after bad. Portman's done a phenomenal job representing Ohio and really put together a phenomenal campaign. I think that, that helps us, too. Is it, so what's the ground game like in Ohio? I mean, what's We've the got a very robust ground game. Um, there's no question about it. I, I think Governor Kasich's unbelievably popular. You brought him up. 
Um, he's done a great job, not just with the state in terms of jobs, but from a political standpoint, reaching out to folks. He did phenomenally well with both the Hispanic community and, and the black community, things that we as Republicans need to do better. He, he did a great job in Ohio um, reaching out not just on election season, but he continued as governor to really bring people into to his administration and, and go to events and show up. And I think that speaks to the volume or to the, to the percentage that he got of those communities. That being said, I think our ground game in Ohio is second to none. Remember, we learned a lot of lessons in 2012, um, one of which we had to have a year-round permanent, permanent presence in these communities. We've done that, especially in a state like Ohio, not just you know Columbus, but we've had uh, a, a black Hispanic engagement program in key communities in, in Cincinnati and Cleveland. Um, that's helping us. And again, when you are getting crushed, like we did last time in a lot of these communities, um, you know, Romney got 6% of the black vote, McCain got 4 the last NBC News poll has, has Trump at 8. Um, now that's nothing to go right home about, I get it, we're still not doing as good as we should as a party, but the incremental progress is in the right direction. But in the Fox News Latino poll that came out mid-August, you know, Clinton's up 46 points. Obama beat Romney by 44 points among Latinos. Right. So, so we're whole, I mean, we're, we're where we were, which is again... That's not good enough. It's not good enough, 100%. I think what you've seen, though, over the last two weeks is his engagement. I mean, here we are, uh, the day that he just is, you know, down in Mexico. He's giving an immigration speech. That visit to Mexico just now, very presidential very, you know, laying out five specific policies that they can work to with with the Mexican government. I think it's going to reflect in the polls, not just this visit, but the outreach that he's been having and will continue to have. And again, we're, we're where we were with Romney. If we can up that tick by five, six, seven points, up, up the black vote from six where Romney got to 10, 12, 14 points, that's a game changer. Is that, is the, is the outreach though, as m many people have said, look, this is more about getting back suburban white women yeah, well-educated people in suburbs of philly and columbus and yeah, places I, like and that I, the thing that i find funny about that is, is that we wrote about this four years ago about how we had to do better we've been talking about it from an rnc standpoint and the chairman has uh and and we as a building have been talking about this and putting our money where our mouth is for the last four years so i find it ironic that the very same people who want to talk about you know bring up the growth and opportunity project all the time forget that it was a recommendation that we implemented to, to have that presence in year-round communities. And now we're suddenly saying that the only reason we're doing it, you know, but again, where where's the coverage been the last four years when we opened these offices, when we partnered with Radio One in, in Ohio to go around and, and go to community events with Radio One and TV One to get engaged with the black community in Ohio as just one example. So, uh, look, I, I think that it's interesting that people wouldn't cover it for the last four years. Now they're tuning into it and saying, well, it must only be because of you know, you're trying to, to reach, you know, suburban uh, white folks in, in, in places like the Philadelphia suburbs or northern Virginia. Right. Um, one of the other pieces of this is that Romney, I mean, sorry, uh, Trump is still running a, a few points behind Hillary Clinton in terms of consolidating the base. I think the Monmouth yeah. poll showed her at 89, he's at 83. What, what else can he do? What yeah. else will he do uh, over the next great, 10 I mean, weeks? See, and I think that that's, that's actually an unbelievably key point in this, right? So we're... If we bring Republicans home, which they traditionally and historically always have, you know, we're up a couple. And that's that's But your Trump is not a traditional no, no, candidate. No, 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 fair enough. But I would rather have to make up ground 
on the people that are already, I mean, it's sort of like bringing back a customer, right? You know that they already want to buy the product, they've been in the store, they've subscribed before, you got to get them back. That's better in terms of a conversion problem than somebody who's never bought you before or you know, never shown a propensity to vote for a Republican. So we have our work cut out for it, but it's the easiest of all the problems to solve. And I think what he's got to do is continue to, uh, to, to talk about uh, policies that bring us together to talk about the, the party as a whole. I think, you know, he is an outsider. He did hit the party a lot during that primary process. And I think there's a lot of, you know, what's traditionally called establishment Republicans who need to come home and are sitting on the sidelines waiting. But week after week, you see that number ticking up, ticking up, ticking up. And as you see that number tick up, you see these polls consolidate both nationally and at the state level. Let's talk about the Senate real quickly. Yeah. Uh, we mentioned Rob Portman. I, I was looking at this the other day. You know, there was this big fear among Republicans that Trump would drag down right. uh, everybody. And it turns out that's not really been no. the case. In fact, if you look at the 12 most competitive Senate races, um, Republicans are running on average about five and a half points better than Trump in, in a lot of these battleground states. Right. Um, why is that? And, and, uh, yeah, and where, actually, do you, where do you yeah. where do you think uh, so I the think Senate that, stands right now? I, I think it's I think I'd give us I, I think we have the. I believe we are going to retain the Senate. I don't know by, I don't want to put a thing on. I think this is going to come down to the last few weeks and a couple of these key races. But to your point, why? I think that the reason is because after a few cycles of some of these senators getting caught off guard, you look at a guy like Mark Kirk, he has been running hard since the day he got elected six years ago. Rob Portman, I mean, again, the reason that they're running strong is because they didn't wait to the last minute. You saw some of these guys a few years ago, Dick Luger, who you know realized that his license wasn't even from Indiana anymore. Um, some of these folks just getting caught off guard. The Senate folks in key races were ready. They weren't ready this year. They were ready four years ago. They've been running hard, raising the money in their states, talking about who they are and understanding that it's that they had to really get out there and talk about their accomplishments. And again, you, you look not just Rob Portman, you Toomey, Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson was written off, you know, two years ago. Oh, he could never win in a presidential year. He's doing phenomenal. Because for the last six years, he's been out there making the case about what he's done for Wisconsin. He's behind in the polls. But, doing... <laughs> but, but, you know, but, but this was supposed to be a blowout. He's hanging in there. Well, one poll out had him down 14 today. Another poll had him down three. So right. But I, if you I, split the difference, no, he's no, down. No, he's but, down. But, but again, I look at you, you look at the majority of polls and the data. I'm more in the three camp than anything else. I mean, the data that we look at, he's, he's, been, a, he's been fighting hard. Uh, but it's not just what he's done the last two months. It's what he's done the last you know, six years. Um, and he's been making the case as an independent voice for, for the people of Wisconsin. And I think it's paying off. But you got to be, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, probably five, six, seven months ago, to your point, the Senate had been written off. None of these races. And people are now going, well, why is it? And it's because the senators, they're in cycle, were prepared. Um, and not just, again, at the beginning of this year. They've been working hard for the last several years, knowing and watching some of their colleagues the last couple cycles fall by the wayside because they sort of had political atrophy. They hadn't you know, gone out there and flexed those political muscles and gotten their team and gotten their GOTV effort, really canvassed the areas and built up the, the volunteer base again, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Well, we'll have to see how it works out. Sean Spicer, thanks for your time. Thanks today. for Appreciate having it. me on the inaugural, uh, <laughs> on the inaugural show. Finally, Caitlin Huey Burns and James Arkin examine the battleground state of Ohio. It's great to be in Ohio. I love this state. I do. I love this state where I once worked and had great experience. And I must tell you, above all, I love the people of Ohio. 
I am so happy to be here. It is great being in Cleveland. Thank you all. And I have a very special message for you tonight. We're going to win Ohio. We're going to win the White House. And we're going to bring back your jobs that have been taken from your state and every other state in the union. Donald Trump saying, we never win anymore. Well, tell that to the Cavaliers. That was Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump right after they wrapped up their conventions just over a month ago, talking directly to voters in the most competitive state in 2016 and just about every other presidential election year. I'm Real Clear Politics reporter James Arkin with a report on Ohio, the swingiest of swing states, as one Ohio congressman told me, and one of the most important battlegrounds in the 2016 presidential election. Both candidates have made Ohio-specific pitches to voters a couple of times since the start of the general election, and they've visited often. Both candidates are back in Ohio this week to continue the outreach. The unconventional dynamics of this year, with certain battleground states like Colorado and Virginia falling off the map, and other potential battlegrounds like Georgia, Utah, or Arizona being discussed, have not yet reached the Buckeye State. The perennial battleground is still close this year and winnable for both candidates. It'll be crucial to deciding who wins the presidential election. Ohio should be fertile ground for Donald Trump. The state has a high percentage of white voters, and blue-collar workers in Appalachia could be amenable to his economic message. But Trump has consistently been down in the polls since wrapping up the GOP convention in Cleveland in late July. I spoke with Matt Borges, chairman of the Ohio Republican Party, about the swing state in this year's election. Borges said the Ohio GOP has built in structural advantages in the state and have been very successful in recent midterm statewide elections. Borges also pointed out that Hillary Clinton is viewed unfavorably and, according to some recent polling, a majority of Ohioans don't find her honest. All positive signs for Republicans in the state. I think it was helpful for us to have the convention in Ohio. I think it was helpful for us to host the first debate in Ohio to bring the focus back to the state and, and, and present something very good for the world to see Cleveland and, and to see our party. We've had, we just have a lot of built-in advantages that other places maybe don't. We've been able, I think, to take advantage of some of that and you know, buoy our efforts here. So and now it's time to see if we can, I mean, from the primaries in this, last, this past year, we have now a million more registered Republicans than we did prior to the primary. Oh, not last year, no, sorry, earlier this year. Mm -hmm. It only seems like two years ago. <laughs> yeah. And our turnout for the primary, and this happened nationally, but ours was even more acute, was up 61% over the highest that we'd ever had previously, which was 2004 for George W. Bush, theirs was down. They still had a contested primary, but they were down 40% from where they were in 2008, which was previously their highest turnout primary election for president. So the enthusiasm was very clearly on our side. The interest has been very clearly on our side. The messaging about what Republicans are and what they mean and what they do, what they're able to accomplish, is very clearly on our side here. Mm -hmm. And we just have some built-in structural advantages that I think make it easier and better for us to uh, 
to hopefully deliver Ohio's electoral votes. So you talk about the structural advantages that you have and how well the Republican Party in Ohio has done over the last couple of statewide elections, and you talk about Hillary Clinton's negatives and how she's not connecting here, and yet she's winning in Ohio, has been consistently in recent polls. Why is Donald Trump not connecting with Ohio voters? Why is he not able to take advantage of some of these structural advantages that you're talking about to be leading in the state at this point? Well, look, I think we saw after the conventions were over a couple of weeks where we just weren't effective, where the Trump campaign wasn't effective in terms of being on message and starting to galvanize support. Um, it was a missed opportunity. I don't think a critical or fatal one. So we have to recover from that. He has been recovering from that slowly over the last week, two weeks. Um, he's going to have to continue on this path. I had an opportunity to, we become kind of odd friends, sort of a strange couple here. But um, he calls, mm -hmm. and uh, usually when he's coming to Ohio to talk or something, he called during the convention. We, and he was here, I guess it was about two weeks ago now. He was in Canton. And that it was an evening event that day. He had spoken at the Detroit, Detroit Economic Club, hmm. which that speech was, was was better. And he certainly maintained his composure and he delivered his message and you know the kind of things that people had been concerned he hadn't been doing previously. And um, I had a chance to speak with him and I said, Mr. Trump, if you campaign like you campaigned today, you're going to win Ohio. If you campaign like you campaigned the last couple of weeks. You're going to lose a lot. Nothing I can do. The only person who matters in this situation is you. You have to do this better. And um, he pretended to listen to me. And I don't have a big enough ego to think that he takes my advice, but, but I had to make sure he heard me. And What was his response, though? What was he saying he, to you? He never argues. Unfortunately, I've had to have conversations like this with him three or four times. <laughs> and he doesn't argue. Mm -hmm. he, um, I mean, he'll push back a little on some things just to kind of but he, you know, he nods and he listens. And, Does and that make you think that he understands what you're saying about what it takes to win Ohio? Does he, does he get what Ohio voters want to hear from him? Well, I think it would be wrong for me. It would be like malpractice for me not to say it, whether he listens or not. You know? <laughs> but I also think that after a couple of weeks, of not, he couldn't just dismiss the polls anymore. And... Um, it would be I, whether it was the din of people talking to him, or the new team that he brought in, or just the fact that he recognized that this trend is not good. This is not something that I would feel comfortable about in, in business or or any or, or politics or or any aspect. Um, I think he realized that he needed to change things around. A theory that I've had for a while, and I, I haven't shared this with him, but and I'm not sure it's necessary now. But I think people take a different kind of emotional approach, have a different connection to their primary vote than they do to their vote for leader of the free world. Now it's real. Now we have to put someone in charge who can, like, govern. Mm -hmm. You can't just cast a protest vote against your own party if you're mad about something or, like you can in a primary. And so I think that the ground sort of shifted. People keep talking about a pivot. People keep talking about how oh, every year the Democrats run to the left during the primaries and they run back to the center. Well, yeah, you know, you sort of have to mm -hmm. because 
voters are now looking for something just a little bit different mm. out of who maybe will be the standard bearer for their party versus who's going to be the leader of the free world. Mm. And um, it, I think there's no question that it took some time for him to adjust to that. For Democrats, the state represents a different kind of problem. Chairman David Pepper said Democrats have an advantage in registered voters in Ohio and simply need sharp get-out-the-vote efforts. When Democrats head to the polls in high numbers, Pepper said, they win elections. And they've successfully done that in the last two presidential races, where President Obama carried the state by a couple percentage points. But they've been decimated in recent midterm elections. Overall, I would say Ohio is where it always is, which is close. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and it doesn't surprise us that it's close. Uh, it, we're, we're glad to have seen, you know, a little bit of a bounce after the convention where she looks like four or five points is what public polls are saying. But And that's about what we'd expect. I don't expect Ohio, because of our unique makeup, to become one of these states where you have a runaway uh, either way. Uh, but we know in the end of the day, if we get the turnout that we've generated successfully in 8 and 12, we know in the end that Ohio is a is a mildly blue state mm -hmm. when when most people show up and when our big cities show up that those normally will outnumber the red counties which are, there are far more of them but but if and if we do that again that's why the ground game is so important we think ohio will again go blue but again not it won't be a runaway it's not going to be uh you know it it, it will it, it takes a true wave year and we had that in 06 uh for it to be to, you know, someone really throttles the other. I think it'll be close, but I think mm -hmm. if we do our turnout work well, it should be blue. So what is it, because, I mean, we've seen the, the trend in a lot of other states, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, even Virginia, there was mm -hmm. a poll today that showed that she's really kind of pulling away there. What is it about Ohio, the, the demographics, wh right. whatever it is, that, that makes it so that even if you're seeing some positive polling right now, you don't expect her to be able to pull away? Here. I mean, I can't, I don't want to speak to the... I don't know Virginia and what was the other state that um, Colorado. I think that I th I do think right now there are more people in Ohio that that I I'm assuming just aren't in Colorado or or um, Virginia that are going to hear Donald Trump's message on the economy and be pulled in that direction, even against other instincts they have. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's clearly true in Pennsylvania to some degree, too. So I would, my guess is this is the, the non-college educated white voter. It's just there's a higher percentage here, and we know that, that Donald Trump's doing well with those voters. So, um, you know, better than he is with just about anyone else. And my guess is that, that and that's a group that we have to talk to and make very clear um, that, listen, this guy is selling something that, that uh, sounds good right now, but when you look at his own practices, uh, he isn't your friend. He hasn't been your friend, and he certainly won't be your friend when he's president. But I think that that may reflect some of it. That there's there's a larger group there in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, than there must be in Virginia or or um, or Colorado. But bigger picture, I just think Ohio happens to be a state that that when you and this is something I think John Glenn has said for years, and Ted Strickland said, if you took if you took the country and shrunk it to a, a state the size of our population, it would look like just like Ohio, you know, mm -hmm. big city, small town, you know, rural, urban, agriculture, economy, industrial, um, racially diverse, mm -hmm. uh, close to reflective of the country. So we just happen to represent all those factors in one state, and that's why I think 
uh, you, you generally aren't going to see anyone run away with it. It's going to be close. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the thing that I think energizes Democrats uh, is that in the end, though, we realize that it's on us to win. When we do our job and turn a high voter turnout, you know, when we, when we generate high voter turnout, we do win. And in some ways, it matters much less what the other side does. If we do our job and turn the vote out, and as as we saw at eight twelve, our numbers are higher than theirs. We have more voters. Yeah. We have more voters uh, susceptible, not susceptible, but we have more voters who are who are you know open to our message. And when they hear us talk about the economy in particular, they they hear what they want to hear and they and they vote for us. And and I think and 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 so it's on us. And at a certain point. All the money in the world spent on the other side. If we generate the turnout, we need to turn out. We need to generate. We win the election, and that's why it's so important to us to be organized. So Ohio and the 18 electoral college votes it represents are going to be crucial to determining who wins the 2016 election. Are Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump doing what they need to do to win in the Buckeye State? The other thing about Trump, you've heard him. He says, "America first. Sounds real, doesn't it? as if we wouldn't put America first. That's sure what I believe. He says it, but then everything he makes, he makes somewhere else. He makes dress shirts in China, not Brooklyn, New York. He makes furniture in Turkey, not Cleveland, Ohio. He makes barware in Slovenia, not Jackson, Ohio. And he goes around saying he wants to put America first and America workers first. In Columbus, and I looked at this, and this is bad. This is bad. Ohio has lost one in three manufacturing jobs since Bill Clinton signed NAFTA. Bill Clinton signed it. And Hillary Clinton wants it. Think of that. Hillary Clinton's disastrous trade policies are responsible for the manufacturing job losses in Ohio and throughout the other states of this country. Hello, Columbus! I am so happy to be here on this absolutely glorious, beautiful Ohio afternoon. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. November 8th, you got to go and vote. I'll be back. I'll be back so much you'll be sick of me. But November 8th, you have to go and vote. We've got to win this election. This is a big one. Ohio is a very important state. We have to go. We have to win this election. I love you all. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.